0: This episode is brought to you by Cheap Wine. Thank you for helping us through these difficult times. Welcome back, everybody, to My Fave Queer Chemist. I'm your host, Beck.
1: And I'm Geraldo. And we hope that you all are staying safe and healthy, especially now that a lot of schools are starting or have started classes around the country. We know that these are difficult times and that sometimes it is out of our hands. But please, let's try to minimize the spread of the virus. To wear our masks, and continue to socially distance.
0: We also want to bring attention to what's happening in the South. Hurricane Laura entered the contiguous United States through Texas and Louisiana, leaving a path of destruction and debris. We hope that those of you in the path of the hurricane are staying safe, and we'll share resources on how to help those affected by the hurricane in our Twitter later today. With that, here's our show. <music>
1: Today we are very excited to introduce you all, an incredible chemist. Would you mind introducing yourself?
2: Yes, um, hi everyone. I'm Antonio Tinoco Valencia. My pronouns are he, him, his. And just to give you a quick background about myself, I was born in Guanajuato, Mexico, and I immigrated to the US with my family as a young child. I navigated most of my formal education as an undocumented student uh, until today uh, I have DACA. And I initially started at East Los Angeles College, being that I'm undocumented, it was my only viable choice as a, you know, undocumented immigrant. So, you know, at the time, this is pre-DACA. This is in 2008. I wasn't eligible for most scholarships nor financial aid. So that was my choice to start at ELAC as a, you know, as a, the viable choice that I had at the moment. Um, there I participated in the mathematics engineering and science Achievement program, um, the Mesa program. Uh, I started as a mechanical engineering major and then I took uh, general chemistry and that's where um, I you know I got a, like a taste of chemistry and I really liked it so I changed to chemical engineering and then I uh, took organic chemistry and I that's where I got hooked that's, that's like I don't know why people called it the weeder class because that's where <laughs> I, I made my mind like this is for me this is what I want to do and I also uh, for whatever reason I saw that chemistry was a little bit more accepting and more diverse than engineering so I had for example I had a uh, one of my professors and the director of the, the MESA program he was an openly gay Puerto Rican man so I was like wow like you know it was very like different from engineering so And then briefly, I did a summer REU uh, in the laboratory of Professor Richard uh, Albrucci at the University of Southern California, um, where I did uh, inorganic chemistry research and uh, where I synthesized perovskite and ski-like structure nanocrystals for energy storage applications. And then I transferred to uh, California State University in Los Angeles. Where I performed research with Professor Allison McCurdy in the area of bioorganic chemistry, where I synthesized a calcium selective naphthopyran based photo switch for the study of oscillatory calcium signaling in mammalian cells. So, right now, currently, I'm transitioning. I defended my thesis in June, and I'm going to start my postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard with uh, Professor Emily Balskis in the Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology.
0: Nice! Wow, that is that is is, yeah, quite quite the journey. So I guess (laughs) we'll start off like kind of in the in the beginning. So, um, like you mentioned, you um, ended up transferring to Cal State Los Angeles. Right. So how was that experience there, Um, especially switching schools? You know, halfway through your undergrad career, and and how was that transition?
2: Yeah, um, the transition wasn't too bad. I mean, uh, I think in California, a lot because it's so expensive to live here, um, a lot of people start at community college. So um, it wasn't that big of a deal. I think for me, the biggest draw that I had towards Cal State LA was that I could receive a high quality rigorous education. The research was top notch for a master's level university. It was affordable. I only paid, like, I think the tuition was like $7,000 a year. And what was interesting, too, when I would talk to the professors, they would tell me, like, they're the undergraduates run the research. They're the ones doing everything in the lab. They're the ones ordering chemicals or the ones coming up with ideas. So I think um, in hindsight, that really prepared me really well for graduate school. So yeah, and it's you know Cal State LA being a minority serving institution, it's also a Latino serving institution or a Hispanic serving institution. Institution, uh, it was super diverse, right? So I had friends from all levels of socioeconomic status, cultural, racial backgrounds, um, and at the time, I didn't really, I didn't really think much of it. I, I think I took it for granted. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. I'm from LA, this is how it is. Like, it was until um, until I got to Rochester, where I was like, whoa, like. Los Angeles is not like the rest of the country. So um, uh, in terms of my identity as an LGBTQ person, or I I identify as a gay man, they weren't, yeah, at Cal State LA, I can't really think of any organizations that we had for LGBTQ students. And I think that has to do with the demographic because most of the students there were either Latino or Latinx or East Asian. I think culturally uh, those like those cultures tend to be very conservative mm-hmm. and um, they don't uh, like I know growing up for me like I didn't like I wasn't out to my family until I went to graduate school because mm-hmm. it was just not like like we don't openly talk about our sexuality mm-hmm. so so yeah that was my experience at Cal State LA
1: that's so interesting yeah I, I kind of resonate with that because I did my undergrad back home so. It, you, you can really In see Puerto the difference. Rico, right? Yeah, Puerto Rico. Yeah, okay. So you can see the difference when you're surrounded by a lot of people that look like you or you can, you know, it has similar things. And then moving to a completely different place when you are not anymore part of a group that big and you're right. a smaller group now. Mm-hmm. You can really see the differences.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it was definitely like a culture shock.
1: <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So that goes perfect with our next question, which is then you moved to New York, to Rochester, New York, to to do graduate studies at the University of Rochester. So how was that transition? I know you started mentioning about it. How was the transition from the West to the East Coast and and your experience as an LGBTQ plus grad student there?
2: Yeah, so uh, the biggest shock or the biggest transition that I had to make was like a culture shock. It was, um, I went from a predominantly minority city and state to a predominantly mm-hmm. white city or white yeah, metropolis cuz the city's pretty diverse the center city of rochester but the metro region is quite is not very diverse um and uh the people were not as warm as they were in in LA so that kind of took some getting used to obviously the food was very different um yeah. I'm like a foodie. So like that got a lot, like I had to, I learned really to make Mexican food at home. Like <laughs> i never went out to eat Mexican food cause I just never wanted to get disappointed. Uh, <laughs> you know, just as a side note. Um, and then, uh, you know, going from Cal state LA, which was, which is a state university with approximately 30,000 students to a smaller university. And it's not, you know, University of Rochester, is not, a small university. Uh, it has a student population around 12,000, but that got uh, some. You know, it, I had to get used to it. It, it was a transition, um, and it. I. F- uh, one thing that I had to get used to was the institutional dynamics within, like you know, the difference between a state school and a private school at Cal State LA. I had a lot of limitations on what I could and couldn't do because of my legal status, and uh, at the University of Rochester, that was never an issue. Like I could sign up for any type of like travel award any type of just any type of program or funding opportunity it was never an issue so that was something very positive um uh, in my experience at the university of rochester uh weather change uh of course i never saw snow and the first time (laughs) i saw snow was when i moved to rochester so Uh, That was a major transition that I had to make. And uh, especially my first winter, I think it was a very rough time. And I think the redeeming factor was the spring because spring, you know, like I I was, it was the first time that I could uh, see the season changes. So, Mm -hmm. and the spring was absolutely beautiful. So I was like, okay, you know, uh, upstate New York does have its virtues. So I like, you know, I really fell in love with the, with spring there. Yeah, my experience as an LGBTQ plus student, I have to say was very positive at the U of R. Like Rochester is a very liberal, very welcoming campus. It was never an issue really. And I honestly, I think going to Rochester and just going to graduate school in general made me feel much more empowered and much more confident uh, Mm -hmm. about that part of me, my like my sexuality. And um, I was able to come out to my parents and my family Uh, soon after I turned 27, so that, you know, it's, it's kind of older, I guess you can say, Um, immediately after I passed my qualifying exam, it's like, okay, (laughs) I passed my qualifying exam, (laughs) like nothing nothing
0: holding you back now. Yeah, I
2: got nothing holding me back, so like, let's do this, Um, and I think um, from that moment onward, I just had this very strong sense of independence, so, Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so I have to say, like, my experience as a queer graduate student was very positive, at Rochester, yeah,
1: that's good. Yeah, yeah. I going back to the weather part. I was <laughs> I was also looking forward for spring this year after our first winter. But then I looked spring through my window. Cause right. Yeah. Same. <laughs> Quarantine.
2: Same because I yeah to write a thesis. It's like as much as yeah. I wanted to be out and about. It's like oh look at like the pretty weather. No, like, no pretty I guess thesis. not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: So during your time at Rochester, you were awarded the Ford Foundation predoctoral fellowship. Right. Mm-hmm. So now it's like fellowship season for like all Great. the first yeah. years in in grad school. So can you tell us about the experience of applying for that, and if you have any advice that you could give um, for those of us who are currently applying to fellowships?
2: Yes, sure. Um, so yeah, I applied to the Ford Foundation predoctoral fellowship twice. First as an undergraduate student um, during my senior year or May last year, uh, while I was applying to graduate school. So it was a little mm-hmm. bit um, stressful. Um, I didn't get it. Um, so then that, that didn't it didn't really deter me. And um, so when I was at Rochester, at the end of my first year going on to my second year, around this time, maybe a little bit earlier, that's when I started um, preparing my application to to submit a second time around. Um, and I have to say having that, uh, first time experience during my undergrad, my last year of undergrad, I felt much more comfortable during the, uh, the process, like from beginning to end. So, uh, so I started really early. Um, the second time around that I applied, I started in the summer and fall before the December deadline. Uh, I attended a writing boot camp. I had multiple people read my statements, uh, my lab peers, my professors, former mentors, um, And I think all of their collective input and critiques were really useful. So uh, the advice that I have for, you know, students in their last year of undergrad or first year graduate students, second year graduate students. One thing that I have to get, you know, a piece of advice for them is to keep up your grades in both undergrad and graduate school. The Ford Foundation predoctoral fellowship places heavy emphasis on um, what they call this evidence for superior academic achievement. And you have to keep in mind that you're not only competing with STEM students, but you're also competing with students in the humanities, social sciences, behavioral sciences, which, um, like, no offense, they tend to have higher GPAs and have a lot of, like, you know, have more time to do extracurricular. So they look, you know, they have like stellar um, mm-hmm. applications. Um, Another piece of advice I would say is stay connected, like stay well connected with your former advisors and mentors and make sure they know what your career goals are, um, especially during the time that you're applying to the fellowship. Uh, I think it's, I, I feel a little bit silly for saying this, you should read the statement of program goals and the positive factors for selection. And you make sure you not only satisfy the statement,
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and you complement the goals of the fellowship, but also incorporate some of the language that the fellowship announcement has in the actual like the like the pdf you know like try to use some of that language like I'm not saying verbatim, say the same words that they that they use, but you know mm-hmm. um around around that um use like language that is very similar, obviously start very early, I think it's never too early, and that's something I really learned um in my undergraduate year. Uh, when I applied, I started late. I thought it was like, "Oh, no big deal, but like it made things like so much more stressful when you procrastinate right so mm-hmm. yeah. um, and I think the last thing i I want to say is that you should, in the personal statement, you should share your story and don 't worry about coming off scholarly. I was so worried when I was writing that I was not being eloquent enough or mm-hmm. that you know i wasn 't sounding very um, yeah like very scholarly Mm -hmm. um so my advice to you or to anyone you know thinking of applying is just to be authentic to yourself and tell your narrative the way you want to tell it not don't try to like make it fit into what you think it should be is it Mm -hmm. yeah if that makes sense yeah yeah
0: Yeah, no that that does definitely
1: yeah (laughs) it's so funny (laughs) because Well, you were talking about this, I was like, okay. after the GRFB, I might just apply to the Ford one if I already have a material. But then you mentioned the great things. (laughs) I
2: was like, Uh, okay, never mind. Yeah, I mean, you should definitely apply. Like, I I don't like, yes, apply, please. No, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But um, I have to say they definitely uh, look at the grades, Mm -hmm. for sure.
1: (laughs) Yeah, sadly. Sadly, yeah. Switching gears a little bit, you served as a president of the Alliance for Diversity in Science and Engineering at the University Mm -hmm. of Rochester. Um, Can you tell us about the mission of the Alliance and also your experience being part of it?
2: Yeah, so so two graduate students and I, two other graduate students and I, um, we wanted to, you know, we found the chapter of the Alliance for Diversity in Science and Engineering because we wanted to create like an all-inclusive graduate student organization that would promote diversity, as well as support URM graduate students, professors and professionals in STEM. Because at that time, um, we're talking about 2018, there were, we have nothing like Rochester, we didn't have SACNAS, we didn't have SHEP, like anything related to STEM, like sadly. So, um, you know, we, we came together, we formulated a mission statement, we put our application together. We met with different diversity offices, on multiple campuses because uh, the University of Rochester has what's called the River Campus, which is where the School of Arts and Sciences is, is located. But we also have the Medical Center where uh, the School of Medicine is at, and um, and that's where all the biochemistry, biophysics, and other STEM departments are located. So we had to you know, go all through campus to talk to um, the offices to see if they can fund us, if we can work with them. Um, so yeah. Uh, in terms of the mission of ADC Rochester, um, you know, like I said, we we want to promote diversity in STEM and support URM STEM students and professionals, but really the goal that we had in mind was to start a diversity in STEM lecture series, which is a speaker series where each speaker gives a two-part seminar, a science lecture, and a diversity lecture, um, where they focus on their career pathway, and they highlight their unique stories and backgrounds that help them get to where they are at that, you know, at that present day. Um, And we had a very successful lecture uh, series. We had three in total. The first one was Professor Rigoberto Hernández at Johns Hopkins University, and he is actually the director of Oxide, which is like a diversity association within chemistry. So that was really good. We also host. Uh, we hosted, and we st- continue to host, panel discussions, socials, and pro- uh, professional development workshops. We do outreach events focused on STEM within the local community. So yeah, like I said, it took a lot of initiative and a lot of gathering of resources to come together and like, make it happen. Um, one of the events that I was most proud of uh, was uh, when we hosted the first ever LGBTQ and STEM academia panel discussion. Uh, with U of R faculty and staff members and it was really interesting because during the panel discussion one of the faculty members who completed his PhD at the U of R in the mid-90s he told us he never thought like in a million years that he would have been able to openly discuss his journey as a gay man at his own alma mater and he highlighted all the general you know the generational differences of like being gay in the 80s and the 90s and what it means to be gay now or be queer now or yeah so that was that was a really insightful panel discussion and i think it was um it was kind of nice because it was like the last month that i served as president and like so it was like a really good way to like cap everything off yeah yeah
0: that's so cool that's awesome. yeah that's awesome also crazy that in 2018 they didn't have it like anything that's... yeah but,
2: yeah it's it, i i that also fueled me to really, you know, band together and um and get something started because I was like, how mm-hmm. oh. yeah. like, yeah, we're in 2018. Like we need to have something yeah. for URM students.
0: Yeah, definitely. So as you mentioned, um you are about to start your postdoc. Yeah, in
2: September. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: um at Harvard and Dr. Balskis. So can you tell us about like the process? of finding a postdoc, applying, and also if you have any advice or tips for grad students who might be interested in going to get a postdoc.
2: Sure, Um, so the way I went about starting my postdoc application process, I first, you know, like, and I think we all kind of do this, like we will like look at papers that are not necessarily like related to our research, but they're really like cool or like interesting to us. And I read a paper by the Valskis group and I was just like mind blown. I was like, what, like, how is she doing? Like, how is she studying all the chemistry occurring in her, in her gut, you know, in our microbiome? Um, so I became really interested in her research. Obviously I read more papers and I, I looked into her uh, lab website. And then uh, that's where she, uh, she basically has detailed out, like if you're interested in a postdoc, this is what you have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so she, uh, of a professor Boscos or Emily, she requires you to submit a mailed paper application to uh, her uh, Harvard address.
0: Uh Um,
2: Oh, the application uh, consisted of my CV, cover letter, graduate research summary. And so I submitted that in July and then um, of last year,
1: 2019,
2: Uh and then, I knew that, you know, I was going to go to the ACS national meeting in San Diego in August and I knew that she was presenting. So I met, you know, I made it a goal of mine to go see her presentation. And -hmm. then I emailed her ahead of time telling her that I was going to go to her presentation and I would have, you know, really uh, appreciated if we can talk maybe after her presentation. So then uh, I met with her after her talk at the national meeting in San Diego and I had like a mini interview with her. Mm -hmm. Um, and then that's when she she was like, okay, well, um, you know, moving forward, just ask your references to send their letters of rec. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she asked me to prepare a mock research proposal to see how I write and think about my science. Mm-hmm. So I did all of that. I prepared my uh, and I prepared and submitted my proposal. I then had a formal Skype interview one on one with her, and then I had an in person interview at Cambridge a- at Harvard where I presented my graduate research. I met with um, current Valskis group members and you know, I had dinner with her and a few other postdocs. Um, and a month later after that, um, I got an offer via email and I was just like, I remember I, I was in, uh, we were in group meeting and um, I was doing what we probably shouldn't be doing, checking my email or checking on my phone <laughs> and then I saw the email. And I was like, no way. And then I just like turned around and like showed the email to my lab mate. And he was like, what? And I just like, like, I, you know, I couldn't like just burst out during like halfway through. Uh, group <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that's how I, that was my experience. That was my mm-hmm. journey, uh, applying to a postdoc. So, uh, in regards to advice, once again, not to sound like a broken record, prepare ahead of time. Have your cover letter, research statement, up-to-date CV at hand and make sure, I think, make sure to make it a habit to update those documents like at least a month, like every month. You know, just Mm -hmm. give them a quick glance and like remind yourself what you, like if you publish something or if you like um, got an award or, you know, Mm -hmm. gave a presentation somewhere, like just make sure to have those documents Mm -hmm. updated. I also would advise um, students to read literature outside of your immediate, like field of graduate, you know, within your graduate research. Um, So um, and go for the subjects that most interest you. Be persistent. I think my experience taught me that I had to be patient and I had to be persistent because there were a couple of times where I didn't get immediate email responses, and Mm -hmm. I was just like, oh my god, like. Like, I'm like, she doesn't want me, like, yeah. Uh, like um, so, yeah, so, like, you know, be persistent. Uh, you have to be very self-motivated through that process. So, mm-hmm. like, and one last piece of advice, I think you should always dream big and don't think that you can't make it into, like, a big name lab. I never thought that I was going to be able to, like, make it to the Boskus group. I, you know, being such a well-known lab at a school like Harvard, like, mm-hmm. but it was always my dream and I never let it deter me. So, um, so yeah, that's the last piece of advice in, in, in the context of like applying to a postdoc uh, position.
0: That's really exciting. Congratulations. also. Yeah, thank you like that. <laughs> I'm super I'm sure excited. That, that was that. like a re- relief when it, it when was it like, my all...
1: goodness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... We've talked about this a little bit over through our conversation. (laughs) Would you say that your identities as a Latinx, LGBTQ plus individual have had like any effect on your career thus far?
2: Yeah, so I think uh, in regards to my identity as an undocumented Latinx uh, student um, has had a significant impact on my career. Uh, Before DACA, uh, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, none of the things that I have accomplished so far would have been Possible, so Mm -hmm. like my identity as a Latino immigrant to this country has definitely impacted the way I uh, pursued my education. I've you know had to face a lot of hurdles, but um, you know, and then when uh, when DACA was rescinded um, at that very moment, um, I felt like everything that I had worked so hard for was going to be like taken away from me, and it was. It was very, um, like, demoralizing, I have to say. Mm. But, you know, I had to talk to, you know, I talked to my parents. And, you know, my parents, they, they don't have DACA. And, it, it, like, I kind of had to re myself and be like, okay, like, if my parents are in this country working day to day and making it happen for themselves, like, I can definitely keep going. And from that moment onward, uh, I told myself that I was going to work you know, my absolute hardest to make my future career a possibility. My identity as a queer person of color, I think has given me the privilege of being able to connect with and understand many different people of all sorts of backgrounds. I think like you're able, I don't know. I like, I think I'm able to really like connect with many different people. Like, Mm -hmm. and I don't know if it's because I'm gay or because I'm Latino. Like I, I I just feel like it it gave me that privilege. Mm -hmm. Um, but i don't think my identity as uh, uh as a gay man has really ever um limited me and i think that's because of all the hard work and legwork that the previous generations of queer activists and lgbt you know the lgbtq community um has done for our generation we're able to really live in a country that's you know like a magnitude more accepting um and livable than it was like in this, you know 70s, 80s. Um, so, yeah.
0: So kind of going along with with this, how do you think, um, I mean, you, you've said that you've had a really positive experience so far generally, but how mm-hmm. do you think that departments can better support Latinx and queer students and even undocumented students?
2: Yeah, so, um, yeah, when I uh, I saw this question, I'm like, oh man, I don't, like, this is a trick, like, that's a really work. Um, <laughs> And I thought about, like, you know, I thought about my experiences. Um, Mm -hmm. I think chemistry departments and graduate programs really need to make an effort of appreciating, like, our, like, our rich perspectives and backgrounds Mm -hmm. as Latinx and queer students that we bring to the department. I think most departments approach, you know, improving equity as being like, okay, you're here, you're admitted, now we're going to treat you just like all the other students, like, you're, you know, you're all the same which i think does a huge disservice to like latinx students and to students that identify as lgbtq plus and i think we just really needed we need to do a better job of humanizing chemists like Mm. for example um i hosted professor eric jacobson from harvard Mm -hmm. uh, as our student invited lecturer and in his introduction I made it a goal of mine to acknowledge his cuban heritage a lot of people don't know that he's latino and he's his, he's first generation cuban-american um, i um, did play. not yeah. yeah yeah and he he speaks like perfect spanish like he puts my spanish to shame <laughs> um like seriously and um and it was it was really you know it was really like an honor to do that because he told me he continuously thanked me and he told me that no one has ever introduced him as a cuban american so and i was like that's so odd like like why is it why is it so difficult to acknowledge scientists and chemists as like human beings or like you Mm -hmm. know like Mm -hmm. that have a culture that you know we have culture we have our own background so Mm -hmm. i think you know we can also like make modern x and um students and queer students feel more comfortable or more supported, like, through promoting, you know, diversity seminars, like I said, through ATSU, we were doing that, and, like, hosting diversity meet and greets or socials, to really, like, come together and kind of, like, and, you know, like, not to make them as, like, exclusive, where it's only, like, LGBTQ or only, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of next students or URM students, but, like, really make it an effort to, like, come together and, like, get to know one, one another. Like, i don't know maybe i'm too much of a social butterfly but like i feel like we need to do more of that like i don't yeah. know yeah.
0: yeah i mean yeah building building close relationships with and people, building a network right? yeah also yeah. breaks down all of these like thoughts of how different we are right. you know because at, at yeah. the end of it like we all just like want connection and, and we just want like good human relationships and I think, yeah, I think giving like grad students, like gr- graduate school is like such a stressful time. Like I think having more opportunities to like connect with people who like, I feel like I'm pretty connected with all the queer students in our department, mm-hmm. but there's definitely like, I have my own blind spots and I have my own, like, I don't interact with other people in, in the department mm-hmm. as much. So mm-hmm. I think that's a good idea. I think like creating more opportunities to just like yeah. get to know each other.
2: Right. Yeah. No, and I think um, through ATSI, because we're all like collective, we're able to host a variety of like, Mm -hmm. kind of events, not just focused on one thing. Mm -hmm. And I think it's allowed students that would have never met each other to come together and like be like, oh, like you're like you're a student at like Mm -hmm. the medical center. Oh, I'm like a physics student in like the laser Mm -hmm. laboratory for energetics. I don't know, whatever. (laughs) But like it it allows for those connections to be made that would never Mm -hmm. have been made if you would have mm-hmm. just been in your lab.
1: Yeah. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful that we have a Sagnes chapter here of mm-hmm. get to, to meet so many Latinx students here at, in Michigan. It, it's really good and important. Yeah. So who's your chemistry role model and why? And you can have more than one of you if you do. OK, good, because I do.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, really almost, hard. Uh, yeah, almost everyone does. So. Yeah. <laughs>
2: So, I have two chemistry role models, and they're both women. Uh, My former professor and chemistry club advisor, Professor uh, Veronica Jaramillo. Uh, She's my role model because I think her background as a first-generation Latina whose parents immigrated to the United States from Ecuador. Uh, She paid her own college tuition by working part-time while going to college. She got her PhD in physical chemistry, which you don't really heard of, Like you know, like, and this is like early 2000s or maybe, Mm -hmm. yeah, like early early 2000s at the University of Arizona. She was really the first person that I met and I saw her and I was like, wow, like if she can do it, like I can do it too. Like because of her, like her background is very similar to mine. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also she was the first professor to encourage me to continue my education at a very pivotal time where i was about to quit this is like i said i started um my undergraduate education before daca and i just there was a time where i just felt really hopeless like like why am i going to school like i'm not going to be able to transfer i'm not going to be able to do anything but she told me not to and she she really encouraged me to continue um and She, you know, she believed in me and it just meant the world to me. So I always, you know, I always, I've always considered her a role model and a mentor uh, of mine. And the second role model, my second role model is not technically a chemist. Um, It's uh, Professor Frances Arnold. And I remember when I first heard her speak at an ACS local section dinner meeting here in L.A. as an undergraduate. I like immediately fell in love with her research in the field of biocatalysis. I was just like, this is like so much so that this, that's what I did in graduate school. Um, I worked for professor, um, Rudy Fasan at Rochester who happened to be a former postdoc in her lab. So <laughs> go figure. Um, and she, yeah, she really inspired me to go into biocatalysis. And I think her story as a really like a pioneering woman in engineering, in the field of chemical engineering and everything that she's done and accomplished has just fueled my own aspirations. Like she's in my eyes, she's like amazing. And I was really lucky and privileged to have had dinner with her when we, we had her as a, a speaker right after, like I think it was like two or three months after she won the Nobel prize. And I was just like had so a cool. huge like celebrity moment. Just, like, <laughs> yeah. Eating dinner like just with my mouth open as she was speaking, you know. Like, um, and I like blasted it on social media. just like, yes, <laughs> like I got to have dinner with like my chemistry role model. So yeah. so yeah, those are my two um, chemistry role models. Wow.
0: Thanks. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, I'm like, can't even imagine how much I would have like fangirl freaked right?
1: out.
2: Right? Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> it was kind of embarrassing, but.
0: <laughs> so last question, where can yeah. people connect with you on social media if they want to?
2: Yeah. So I'm, I'm really uh, active on Twitter, probably more so than I should be. Um, <laughs> <and> my <laughs> handle is Antonio Tinoco V, V as in Valerie um and i'm also on linkedin so oh,
1: yes
0: perfect
2: but i'm definitely like if you want to like hit me up like dm me twitter <laughs> like that's a way to go about it yeah uh, so yeah
0: awesome well i think that's all we had for you yeah. but this was this was lovely and it yeah. was great talking with you
2: no thank you for having me i was super excited to be on it like yeah i was kind of like <laughs> when i got the in like the email i was like man like I really want to do the interview, but I should also really work on my thesis. (laughs) thesis. I'm
0: glad that we eventually, we eventually. Yes. Yeah.
2: But yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's really an honor.
0: Of course. Thank you
1: for agreeing to do it. Yeah. Yeah. All right.
0: Well, good, good chatting. Bye.
1: All right. bye. Bye. Bye.
0: We want to thank the people that have donated to our Patreon. We are extremely grateful. We hope that y'all will continue to support us like you have done so far. We also want to take a minute to acknowledge what happened to Jacob Blake earlier this week in Wisconsin. Once again, the violence against Black people at the hands of the cops continues to be an issue of great national importance and has unfortunately continued to be met with little care from those in power. Black lives matter today and every day. We'll share resources on how you can support the Blake family and other Black Lives Matter organizations on our Twitter.
1: Remember to fill out the nomination form on the Twitter if you're interested in being interviewed for the show. You can follow us at MFQC Pod. Take care, everybody, and stay safe. We'll see you next week. Bye. Adios.